1: Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious blood groove. Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Brock, Griffin, Jonathan, Rotary Coast, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Roland, Lancelot, Beard, Ash, Willie P., Shant. Brian, Schmarls, Madame Anita Sparrow, Randy Savage, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice-Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant. Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Rum Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. On the 25th of June, 1699, a boat rowed out from Block Island toward the San Antonio. Sarah Bradley Kidd was on that boat, along with Sarah and Elizabeth, their daughters. Mary and Edward Sands also accompanied her. As the boat neared the sloop, The smell of roasting lamb seasoned with cloves and nutmeg wafted across the water. There were still rare spices in America, but Captain Kidd had plenty on hand. As an aside, try cooking up some pork chops or some lamb with a blend of salt, pepper, nutmeg, and cloves. It's great. But a reunion was at hand. This was an emotional moment for everyone involved. William Kidd and Sarah Bradley were very much in love, but they had not seen each other for three years. I enjoy the differences in how this moment is described by men and women writing about it. For example, Richard Zacks describes Sarah Bradley Kidd in The Pirate Hunter, quote, If she followed the latest fashions, the dress she was wearing skimmed the floor, flounced out by petticoats. Her waist was cinched in by a stiff bodice, accentuating her breasts. Derriere, she might have followed la mode by sporting a small bustle. End quote. Daphne Giannacopoulos describes her attire in The Pirate's Wife, quote, Sarah prepared for the reunion by changing into one of her Sunday best. The girls, too, would have been in pretty floor-length dresses to impress their father. End quote. Now, for my money, I like the first description more, but the pirate's wife is almost certainly more accurate to how she was actually dressed. As their boat neared the St. Antonio, William Kidd came out to the rail, and he too was resplendent. His coat was freshly brushed, his calves were in fine stockings, his shoes polished, and he had that new fine wig split down the middle. Sarah picked up the girls and handed them to her husband. William held them in his arms and looked at them while Sarah climbed aboard and rushed over to her husband. They embraced. With their two girls in William's arms, Sarah wrapped them all in a tight hug and kissed her husband. William Kidd's face was likely as unfamiliar to her as it was to their two children. The three years at sea had made him harder. His face was tanned and lined, but he was clean-shaven and smiling. Tears. In his eyes. This is episode 274. Reunions. But of course all of this is speculation. Nobody really knows what happened on the deck. We do have an eyewitness to that account. Mary Sands was there, but she didn't talk about the meeting between Sarah and William. Instead, she was fascinated by James Kelly, an even older, leatherier sea dog. They talked mostly about Thomas Paine, who they both knew, and James Kelly said he hoped to get to visit him soon. The absence of Samuel Bradley, Sarah's younger brother, was probably not a shock to her. They had been in communication already, and William would have been a fool not to mention that Samuel had been left behind thanks to a long illness. However, William Kidd did not have long to spend on heartfelt, tearful reunions. He set his girls down and invited Sarah to his cabin. Not for the reason that you all immediately jumped to, that would come later. No, he had her read Lord Bellamont's letter. See, Sarah Bradley Kidd was smart. Sarah Bradley had been navigating the dangerous waters of New York politics and real estate, finance, and piracy for years. And she'd been winning. There's a very good reason that she always had the governor's ear, no matter who the governor was. There are those who have suggested that in some very real ways, Sarah Bradley Kidd was not a lilting flower on the sidelines, that she was already an accomplice to everything her husband had done. Some would even suggest she was the senior partner in their relationship. She read over the letter sent by Lord Bellamont and... Sarah Bradley Kidd did not like what she saw there. Specifically, according to the pirate's wife, quote, something about Bellamont's wording caught their attention. And then she quotes the letter, if your case be so clear as you have said. Giancopolis goes on, maybe that was just the governor's writing style, but this was a life and death situation. End quote. Sarah Bradley was suspicious of the governor's words, and she made a strong suggestion to her husband. His plan to get rid of all that treasure, hell, that may have been her idea, but she thought it wasn't going far enough. He still had a lot of money on board the St. Antonio, and she thought it best if he hid all of it away. William naturally agreed, and they prepared to depart. Before they did so, though, William Kidd asked Mary Williams that woman who had housed Sarah, to hold out her apron. And Captain Kidd reached into his sea chest and pulled out fistfuls of gold coins, which he dropped into it. With this sudden windfall of riches, the Sands headed back to their home on Block Island. It's possible that Mary Sands interceded on James Kelly's behalf, because before they departed, William Kidd relented and let him go to visit Thomas Paine. With all that business taken care of, the St. Antonio set sail for Gardner's Island, and William and Sarah spent a very pleasant night on board. When they arrived at Gardner's Island the next day, Kidd sent a man ashore to collect John Gardner and bring him aboard. They had a lot more treasure for John Gardner to hide away. There were bales and bales of goods, mostly fabric, muslins and silks and calicoes, There was fabric with gold and silver woven in, and then of course there were all the other goods like opium and spices. Kidd also had a bag of sugar. Most of the other men in the crew also dropped off cargo for John Gardner to hold on to, including Hugh Parrott. All of that went in the warehouse, but the real prize was Captain Kidd's treasure chest. It was reportedly filled with 60 pounds of silver and 60 pounds of gold. That's a proper pirate treasure chest. Reportedly, it was buried under a cherry tree on Gardner's property. And the kids did have another treasure chest to deposit, but this one wasn't going to get buried. There was a friend of the family with them named Thomas Clark, sailing on board the St. Antonio. He'd arrived with James Emmett a few days back. Thomas Clark knew the kid family well. He lived in a house that he'd bought from Sarah. He worked closely with William Kidd when he served as the New York coroner. But in the 1690s, a coroner wasn't what we think of today. It was an agent of the crown. The word coroner actually comes from the same root as crown. Think of coronet or a coronation. A coroner back then was kind of like a detective that worked for the king. In Norman, France, where the word came from, they had a court system that required things like evidence and testimony to convict someone. It was a system that they brought to England in 1066 and is the basis for most of our modern judicial system. The coroner's job, that crown agent, was to collect evidence for the trial. Oftentimes, especially since we're talking about a trial that requires an agent of the king... The crime in question involved a body, and the coroner would have to examine that body, which is where the modern use of the word comes from. But Thomas Clark was a royal detective in New York, but he was also super dirty. He took bribes all the time. He played a big role in the piracy and smuggling ring under Governor Fletcher, and he worked closely with the Kid family. Here on board the St. Antonio, Sarah gave him a chest that, Belonged mostly to her. It contained an assortment of jewels and pearls and spices and silks. As well as some gold and silver. It was a nest egg for Sarah Kidd. But the most important articles in that treasure chest were documents. All of them relating to Captain Kidd's voyage. You know, receipts, things like that. Reportedly, the most important document among them was an account of the Adventure Galley's voyage. Voyage. But this is all later conjecture. The question of what documents actually existed in that treasure chest and where they might have ended up is a question we really don't know the answers to. Richard Zacks writes in The Pirate Hunter, Captain Kidd was once again hedging his bet. Kidd was entrusting his good friend Clark with an amount of goods and bullion that would facilitate a getaway. And, maybe, embezzling a little bit more. Kidd was no saint. He wanted to clear his name, but he also wanted to make sure he reaped a profit from his 1,000 days of misery. Quote. And I think it's also important to recognize here that this was being taken by someone Sarah knew personally. Someone who should, worse come to worst, Sarah Kid could reach independent of her husband to collect all of the goods within. With most of their treasure hidden away all around New England, Captain Kidd and his family sailed east-northeast for Boston and for Governor Bellamont. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time.
0: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history— Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there. In the dark.
1: When the St. Antonio arrived at Nantucket Shoals, just south of Cape Cod, they stopped to plan their next move. And here Captain Kidd appears to have lost his nerve. Understandably, really, he appears to have been having second thoughts about going to Boston. He proposed a plan to sail back to Thomas Paine's Island near Newport. There he could pick up a lot of his riches. Then he would sail for Gardiner's Island and do the same, and finally they would sail south. There they could get the adventure prize with all of their treasure on board and continue south to Darien. New Caledonia was big news here in 1699. Captain Kidd, a Scot by birth, had been hearing all about it from all the other Scots he spoke to, men like Duncan Campbell, also Scottish, couldn't stop talking about it. Now, we all know that the Darien colony was doomed, but there's a fun alternate history to play with. What if Captain Kidd could have turned all that around? What might have happened to the Scottish colony at Darien if Captain Kidd had shown up with just amazing piles of cash? Not to mention a couple of ships, a bunch of food, and plenty of guns. Would that have been enough to turn the colony around? Maybe it would have turned into more of a pirate haven, a new Libertalia in the West Indies, with Scottish backing. But of course we'll never know what could have happened, because Captain Kidd did not sail for Darien. In the end, thanks mostly to pressure from his lawyer and his wife, he decided to continue on to Boston. Before they arrived, though, the St. Antonio spotted a set of sails heading in their direction. They were in one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world, so that's not a surprise, but the sloop that they spotted sailed up alongside the St. Antonio. She introduced herself, as did the captain, a man named Thomas Way. Captain Kidd and Captain Way met and had a discussion, and apparently Captain Kidd found Captain Way trustworthy. Trustworthy enough, at least. See, Captain Kidd handed Captain Way yet another chest full of goods. This chest included three pistols and a pair of scales that were intended for weighing gold. There were also some other articles like a fancy carpet and some of Sarah's belongings, her clothes, some of her jewelry, and her personal stash of pieces of eight. This chest, though, unlike the others, was not intended to be hidden away. It was intended just to get to Boston. Captain Way was going to put it in his ship, carry it into the harbor, and then, at a later date, Captain Kidd could come and reclaim it. Captain Kidd was betting that there was at least a possibility that, as soon as he arrived, he might be arrested. These were goods that, should he wind up in prison, Sarah Kidd would require. In The Pirate's Wife, Daphne Giancopolis calls it, quote, a pirate wife's survival kit. What really sticks out to me about all of this is how benign it was. How routine and by the numbers all of this was for Captain Kidd to hide his goods. It's not like he was cutting special deals here. All of this burying of treasure was just business. Thomas Paine and John Gardner were both more than happy to hide Kidd's legally questionable goods for a fee. That's how they made a good portion of their money. And then this Captain Way... Well, Captain Kidd didn't even know him. they just met, and Captain Way was like, Sure, no problem, I'll just carry a bag of gold into Boston for you. And I'm sure Kidd paid him well for his trouble, but would you be willing to smuggle illicit goods through a port for a person you'd never met before? If so call me. With that very last bit of business taken care of, though, Captain Kidd was free to sail into Boston. As the year 1700 loomed, Boston was still a city of wooden buildings. Their docks, the quayside warehouses, the residential homes, the businesses, they were all mostly made of wood. A few would have had some stone, and there would have been the occasional glass window on the finer buildings, but Even the church where Cotton Mather preached, today we call it the second church, it was made of wood. Now, these weren't, you know, ramshackle buildings. They were solidly constructed with some bespoke woodwork, absolutely, but brick, which Boston's kind of known for, had yet to really catch on. Some of Boston's most famous historic landmarks, places like the Old State House, and the building we know today as the Old North Church, both of them, made of brick, Well, they began construction in the 1720s, others much later. I think a lot of us, especially here in the States, have a picture of colonial Boston, but that comes mostly from the American Revolution, which wouldn't come about for another 76 years. Captain Kidd sailed into Boston Harbor on Saturday, July 1st, 1699. It was a quiet Saturday, and when he arrived, there were no gendarmes waiting to arrest Captain Kidd. But there was a small party sent from Lord Bellamont to greet William and Sarah. They had refreshments, which, you know, probably meant a light snack and some cold drinks, as well as a welcome note from Bellamont and Duncan Campbell to greet them in person. Daphne Giannacopoulos writes in The Pirate's Wife, quote, "The gesture was meant to convey to Kidd that Bellamont was his friend and ally, but really it was a bogus political move to lure Kidd and his crew off the Saint Antonio and into Boston, where he had plans for him. End quote. On the other hand, Richard Zacks tells us that Duncan Campbell had orders to ask Captain Kidd to, if he would be so kind, stay on the St. Antonio until Monday, but Captain Kidd declined that. And I'm not fully convinced that Bellamont was ready to arrest Captain Kidd just yet. He would later tell people that, oh yes, this was all a big plan, I had it all worked out, I was going to arrest him from the very beginning. But I think that may have just been to save face. I think he wanted to give Kidd at least a modicum of a fair shot, but the scales were certainly tipping toward arrest. Before Captain Kidd set foot in Boston, Bellamont wrote a letter to the Lords of Trade and Plantations about Captain Kidd. Mostly, it was just factual stuff. Here's what we know, here's where he was, etc., etc. But, at the end, Lord Bellamont added on, quote, I must not forget to tell your lordships that Campbell, he means Duncan Campbell, brought three or four jewels to my wife, which I was to know nothing of. It was a subtle point, but Bellamont was clearly informing the Lords of Trade that Captain Kidd was trying to bribe him. Duncan Campbell escorted the Kidd family to his home, where they would be staying while in Boston. It was a comfortable lodging with all the trappings of society that Boston could offer. There, Captain Kidd spent his first night on land since leaving Madagascar, his first night with his wife in a bed on land since he left New York three years prior. The next morning, the Kidd family went to church. It was Sunday in Boston, after all. Cotton Mather was preaching his usual fire and brimstone, and I'm certain he was savvy enough to know just who was sitting in his congregation. I'm sure that for parts of his sermon he was speaking directly to Captain Kidd about the fires of hell. After church was over, though, Captain Kidd really couldn't do much. Sunday in Boston, they took the Sabbath seriously— There was no work to be done, even if Kidd wanted to. But that's not to say there weren't a few men hard at work on that Sunday, the 2nd of July. As soon as Captain Kidd arrived in Boston, letters were written, and couriers sent out all over New England and New York. One such rider, riding his horse almost to exhaustion, was on his way to Albany to get in touch with Robert Livingston, William Kidd's one-time partner and patron. Another such writer was on his way to New York City to get in touch with the Council of New York and the Lieutenant Governor there to inform them of Captain Kidd's arrival and ask them to come to Boston. Another was to reach Sarah Kidd's father, Colonel Samuel Bradley. Bradley was somehow mentally disabled. It was a condition that arose later in his life, so it could have been dementia or maybe a brain injury or... Some form of pretty serious mental illness. Whatever the case, though, Colonel Bradley loved his son in law. When the letter arrived informing him that William Kidd had returned to America, the person who delivered the letter recorded This caused him so much joy that he had to kiss your honor's letter several times because of the good news, for this simpleton cares for the blowhard. The blowhard is Captain Kidd. It would take the Council of New York and the lieutenant governor several days to arrive in Boston. But the Council of Massachusetts was there already, as was Lord Bellamont. Captain Kidd spent most of the third, a Monday, unloading the cargo that was left on the St. Antonio. But as evening fell, he was called to Peter Sargent's house. That's where Lord Bellamont was staying, in Boston. Peter Sargent was the richest man in Boston, and the house was opulent. It was made of rich, stained wood. There would have been a huge fireplace in the parlor, probably unlit, it was July, but there would have been plush armchairs and thick rugs and gorgeous tapestries, even a painting or two. Governor Bellamont, suffering from his gout, sat in the center of the room, wearing a silver-embroidered waistcoat with a red overcoat accentuated by thread of gold. On his hip, He wore a sword of silver with a hilt encrusted in jewels. And when I say a sword of silver, I mean a sword made of silver. Unless you're fighting werewolves, that's not a sword that would be of much use. Now, do I think it possible that Lord Bellamont was actually a vampire engaged in nocturnal warfare with a clan of werewolves there in colonial New England? Well, no, but... It would make a few things make sense here. Bellamont, while he was in Boston, as far as I can tell, never went to see Colonel Mather preach. He never went to church. He did in New York, but not in Boston. He also kept fairly strange hours. He stayed inside a lot, because of his gout, I'm sure, not because he's a vampire, but most of his business seemed to be done in the evening or at night. I'm not saying that the Glorious Revolution was actually a war between the vampires and the werewolves of old Europe, and that Lord Bellamont here had been sent to the New World to continue that fight against New World werewolves. That's, That's crazy. I'm just saying, you know, silver swords are weird. Captain Kidd was brought into the parlor, where the Council of Massachusetts sat around in their plush armchairs. Now, he was allowed a seat of his own. This wasn't going to be an interrogation, just a you know, a friendly chat, but Captain Kidd was feeling the pressure. All throughout this conversation, he tried to steer the discussion toward the, you know, the mutineers, or the violence that had been done against him, all the stuff that made Captain Kidd look like a victim. And Lord Bellamont wasn't disputing that exactly. He was more interested, though, in one single thing. He wanted to know what Captain Kidd had brought them. He wanted a full accounting of Captain Kidd's treasure right here, right now. Kidd said he would be happy to give a full written account of everything that he owned and of his full voyage, but a verbal account right now, you know, he'd certainly forget things. That would be incomplete. But Bellamont insisted. What treasure did Kidd have? And his tone was severe here. Kid's position, his future, his freedom, depended on what he had to say right here, right now. And Captain Kidd did his best, sort of. He talked about the 40 pounds of gold he had, which was nowhere near the full amount. He talked about the 80 pounds of silver he had, which was not the full amount. He talked about bales of silk and spices and opium. But he also lied quite a bit. He said that most of these goods were purchased from Adam Baldridge at St. Mary's. The money he used to purchase these goods he earned from selling the tackle and guns from the Adventure Galley, he said. That was not true. He'd taken all of the tackle and the guns and the cargo from the Adventure Galley and put it onto the Quida merchant and renamed it the Adventure Prize. That was entirely a lie but he was trying to minimize the suggestion of any kind of piracy. You know, I didn't take this from some Portuguese priest, no, 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 I I bought it from a good Englishman. Captain Kidd also gave an account of the treasure that was on board the Adventure Prize down in the West Indies. 70 tons of sugar, 10 tons of iron, 14 anchors, 40 tons of saltpeter, 50 big guns— and, you know, most of that was probably true, but Captain Kidd failed to mention all of the treasure that he had just finished hiding around New England. One of the council members who was present at this meeting would later say, quote, Captain Kidd says he was forced by his men, who have deserted him, to do some acts of piracy, but will give a good account to the king and his owners, end quote. That good account was to be a full written account of everything that he got up to while on the adventure galley. There was also to be a full accounting of all the cargo he had earned in the Indian Ocean and brought back with him. He was supposed to give the names of every man who had sailed with him on his three-year voyage and make special note of the 96 who had left him for Culliford. And he was given one day to produce these documents. It was a daunting task. But he wasn't arrested. After Lord Bellamont asked him for this daunting list of documents, he dismissed Captain Kidd. You know, you can go now. Back outside, to freedom. Go to the pub, which Captain Kidd did, actually. Not for long, though. He had work to do. Next time, we're going to talk about the documents that Captain Kidd produced. They're important to really the whole of pirate history. But we're also going to talk about the plans that Lord Bellamont may have had at this point for Captain Kidd. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a like. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at PirateHistoryPodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. to know.